you seekers, explorers and renegades out there, welcome to the Alchemy Experience podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Lemke. As we move through lives, our lives and we build up a, a library of experiences and opinions and perspectives on those uh, experiences, as we encounter new ones, we do uh, end up judging those new experiences from the perspective of our old experiences and uh, find ourselves triggered from time to time uh, in varying degree of severity as it were and when we are uh, unaware of our own experiences uh, we tend to blame those triggers on external factors this person made me angry I got triggered because of this or that Whereas when we do become uh, fully aware and conscious of our own experiences and we can observe them uh, while we are in the experience but without engaging in them, we can actually notice that those triggers are because we hold something within ourselves that needs to be healed. So now the triggers in our lives fulfill a purpose. The purpose is for us to identify or to observe that there is something within ourselves that needs to be healed. And uh, so in my practice, I often reflect to my clients that uh, don't waste a good trigger. And with that, I mean that the trigger is there as your friend. It's there to give you an opportunity to reflect on something within yourself that you may never have discovered in meditation or in therapy or uh, in conversations with others. It is only through being triggered that you can actually observe these aspects of yourself that need uh, healing. But, as always, it is your choice. So now let's do, dive deeper into this topic and uh, hear from our, the, the wonderful perspectives from our uh, beautiful uh, audience members. This topic is certainly something that is applicable to everybody unless you've reached uh, enlightened status where you have re- fully uh, exposed your Buddha nature or Christ consciousness, whatever. Uh, it applies to all of us. So certainly I hope that this discussion re- resonates with you. So now, enjoy. Ryan Tracy has been quoted saying, everything you do is triggered by, by either desire or fear. Which, uh, and today we are predominantly talking about the uh, triggers uh, that come from fear. So I usually say that in order for you to be triggered by anything, you have to have an element of that within yourself or element of that unhealed within yourself. Uh, so that typically you have a trigger that will cause you to have a quote-unquote stress response, whether that being anger, disappointment, uh, plain fear, uh, or something else. But it always, in my experience anyway, comes back to uh, a fear that you have, whether it being notional or uh, a real fear. But it will be based on experiences that you've had in your life. Uh, So if you look at the sequence, it's trigger, stress response, based on the fear, and then you look at the experiences in your life and the original sensitizing event. So 
typically follows that loop, as it were. You can have external uh, triggers uh, being, you know, confrontations with other people, uh, events or experiences. And when I talk about events, it could be, you know, uh, social inequality, it could be political events, what have you, religious events, etc. Those are external triggers uh, that can uh, cause you to uh, uh, start that stress response. Internal triggers are usually from thoughts or memories. So the external triggers are uh, that usually trigger, initially triggers a thought, but can also trigger immediately an emotion that then triggers a thought. So uh, one or the other will come first. So if it triggers an emotion, that will then trigger a train of thoughts that perpetuates the the um, uh, the, the experience, as it were. Uh, or it will trigger a thought process that will then trigger emotions that will then trigger the thought process. The internal uh, triggers will typically trigger emotions. So you have a memory or thought that then trigger the emotions for you but then go back up to trigger more thoughts, emotions, uh, go, you know, triggering uh, could be depressive thoughts or could be anxious thoughts. Depression usually relates to past events. Anxiety relates to future yet to come events. I see usually emotions as a way for your body to communicate with you that there is an opportunity to heal something. So we can typically sit in meditation or in therapy for years and not experience these emotions that the triggers allow us to experience. So I typically tell all of my clients that the uh, don't waste a good trigger because the triggers do provide uh, benefits for you. And we'll go into that in a, in a little bit. So looking at the emotion, and typically for people, and this is why we end up you know, having awakenings, going to psychotherapists, um, having breakdowns, whatever it may be, emotions a lot of times are hurtful. They are uncomfortable. And when they come up, we, if we're not trained, if we're not trained at dealing with uh, the emotions from a perspective of the observer, we, we typically engage with the emotions and we act from the point of view of the emotion. And that's when we get this um, reactionary uh, uh, it could be explosive, it could be withdrawal, it could be, you know, something that we express in a un- un- or less than controllable way. So we try to avoid it, and when we avoid it, we suppress it, and when we suppress it, it becomes karma. And it, part of our job is to clear out the karma account, essentially, which is, you know, ancestral, past life, cultural, personal, etc., uh, whatever the karma might be. So I think that there's also a distinction between triggers, judgments, and projections. 
because I think that a lot of times there's things that trigger you because you think to yourself, oh no, not again, because of something that was already the, the sensitizing moment from another experience in the past, which also could again be karmic. But I think also that a lot of times projections are such vanity mirrors in the sense of where it's literally like you only see your own stuff. You don't even really see the other person's stuff. And so then you're just pretty much, it's like you vomit all over that person and you can't see past them being a completely different person than that. So I think that the trigger oftentimes has to be recognized that it comes from the self because you're projecting that oftentimes onto somebody else, seeing that there was another issue that had happened with somebody different. So that that's something that I, I see as a distinction. And then I know Byron Katie has the work and she usually with things that are triggers talks about, is it true? Can you absolutely know for certain it's true? How do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? And then finally, who would you be without that thought? And so if you took away the thought and you asked yourself, you remove yourself from it for a moment, then you might see it from a different perspective. Sure, I think the, well, the trigger in itself, um, whether it comes from the outside, i.e. external, or it comes from the inside, um, it, it's the trigger that starts it. And then it's how you um, work with that trigger, whether you, uh, as you say, project it or you, uh, you use it to judge. So, for example, if you, vanity might, is one of your uh, things that you hold within yourself, uh, and you see someone you consider ugly in the shop, then that's an external trigger that you see that person and you, you, it triggers judgment because it's an aspect of yourself that hasn't been healed. So it's still a trigger, right? Absolutely. But I also think too that, and there's so many different words that have frequencies. So, I mean, when you're looking at like David Hawkins work with power versus force, all the different words have between zero and about a thousand Hertz in regards to that. And so when you get to looking at different kinds of words to see whether or not like you and I talked about the word removal versus integration, those are different types of frequencies of words because they have a certain type of a meaning. And there are certain things that words that just have meaning to you and they just continue on. So like the word slob, that is a horrible word to me. I hate that word, but it's one of those things of where it's a trigger because of the fact it's usually used as a very, very negative connotation to someone. There's sure. a lot of specific words that people use. And then because our news cycle is kind of like specifically putting those things out. So people are running around like it's scorched earth, you know, hair on fire 24 hours a day. And that way, then they can feel like, oh my God, they said that word. No, that word. I'm so triggered. And now it's like, I don't remember how long it took, but it's like in the last five years or so, everything that you like see now, it says this might be difficult for some audiences or whatever. I mean, we've always had like, you know, ratings and things like that, but now it's gotten to the point where now there's like trigger warnings on half of the things. And, you know, you go back and look at some of the stuff we looked at 30, 40 years ago and you go, oh my God, like. <laughs> We didn't have trigger warnings. We just got the whole, you know, like a Texas chainsaw massacre or something like that. I mean, those were, those were hardcore and you didn't know what you were walking into when you walked into a movie like that. So if you take that, uh, your uh, relationship with the word uh, slob, for example. Uh, so when you get triggered by that, 
is that is a connotation for you somewhere back in your experiences that brings that gives that word that power for you oh yeah because that was something that unfortunately i had some family members who were incredibly harsh when they were in the grocery store and they would pretty much give people ratings and ranks and right. all sorts of like that and so if that was a word that was used choicely for a different person right as a thing up you're not running around judging every single person that's in the grocery store but when you hear adults do it it also starts to condition you in the sense where you're going like okay that's that's not cool and then you have this perception that people are judging people all the time even though they might not be right and there's that's a perfect example so the if you're still uh, triggered by that now, well, obviously, you know, because you do your, do your work as it were, but you know where it comes from. And then you're able to then go back and do the work on that original sensitizing event, right? So that you don't have to continue to be triggered by it. Correct. But that's also something of where I think the best part about it is that by doing your work and then figuring out what it is that triggers you and then releasing it, I know that body acceptance and that has been an authenticity has been my message pretty much my entire life. So if I see other people that pigeonhole other people by not letting them be themselves or judge their clothing styles or whatever else, it's just like, you know, I love the French concept of laissez faire, let other people be themselves and let you be you. And then everybody can get along harmoniously. But if you, if you don't look at the trigger and you're not a person that does self-reflection, you're not going to get to the other side, which is where you can actually use it as your mission and your purpose to go do good in the world. Well, and that's the, uh, the whole purpose of this discussion, isn't it? To share the, uh, the lessons that uh, other people can uh, take advantage of. Um, so that, you know, understanding that simple words like slob or, I mean, a lot of people have problems with the word moist. <laughs> um, so, and it's, you know, understanding why that is, um, understanding what, whatever it is that triggers you. And this is where, you know, the trigger being a good thing is that it opens the door to uh, finding out where the, uh, this original sensitizing event comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, and, if you know, we can sit in therapy or sit in meditation for years and years trying to uh, find these emotions that a trigger can give you in a split second. So this is where from a, you know, uh, someone doing the, that introspection or that work uh, would value the trigger because they, it takes them uh, somewhere very quickly without uh, having to uh, look for it. So it comes to you as opposed to you having to go and look for it. So the um, trigger opens up that door. And then that's the moment we have to, most people, when that door opens, they try to slam it shut because they're trying to suppress it, right? So instead of doing that, allowing that door to be open and take a step through it and see the breadcrumbs that leads back to the uh, original sensitizing event so that you can work with that, so you can heal that, uh, uh, so that going forward, you wouldn't be triggered by uh, that particular fear. Now, if you look at any given trigger, if you are of the, if you tend to address 
reactive triggers from a point of view of your emotion or your activation, if you like, then it's a good practice to try and observe yourself having the reaction. So you, you notice when you are triggered, and this is something you build up a practice and you, you practice over time. So you try to understand how you can observe yourself. And meditation is a perfect way of doing this. You sit there and you observe your breath, you observe yourself breathing, you observe yourself having sensations and etc. etc. You can then bring that into your everyday life and then allow yourself to observe your experiences. So if you stub your toe, for example, instead of immediately going into reacting, screaming and swearing, which would be a natural thing of doing, uh, which is can be very cathartic in itself. But if you can observe it from a, a different perspective and say, oh, there is pain and I'm hurting and I've stubbed my toe. Um, now that's a difficult uh, uh, example, I suppose, but uh, if, you are, uh, if you do get triggered, same thing. Observe the emotion coming up and observe the thoughts that the emotion evokes. Or if you have a, you can observe your thoughts that triggers the emotion. When you do that, you don't engage with the actual reaction or the emotion, and therefore you don't feed it. So it doesn't perpetuate. So you can allow the emotion to actually drift on out from your body. So it, you allow it to be, you acknowledge it, and it dissipates. So then you have that door open, and you can actually ask the question, okay, I recognize this emotion, I acknowledge it, where does it come from? Where, what fear is it that it, uh, gener it is generated from? And it could be fear of not being enough. It could be fear of not being heard, not being acknowledged, uh, fear of not being loved, uh, fear of uh, not being able to feed yourself. So very basic. Uh, and that's often, ca often case, it's, the, it's very basic. Um, not usually is there fear of not self-actualizing. <laughs> so it uh, usually has to do with some sort of survival because we typically not, uh, we program ourselves or we learn these uh, fears in our younger years. Uh, so but I, there's also that, some, there's actually a study, which is an interesting, so I have a counterpoint to what you just said. Sure. So there is a study actually, a few of them that talks about the fact that when you do stub your toe and exactly that was used as the example, that to basically just blurt out an expletive <laughs> is actually a pain releaser. And yeah. so you have in serotonin in your brain that when you drop an F-bomb, then the, the next thing you know, the, the pain can dissipate in that sense too. Absolutely. And I think having the full spectrum of all of our emotions I know some people don't think swearing is spiritual, but I feel like there's a lot of times where certain words have a certain power to them. And so as a result, that's also the frequency of that as well. And if they're used in the, in the different space and in, in that place, however, I also do not believe though, that, I mean, I, I, I've referred to this before in your podcast that I do not believe in name calling 
And I don't believe that you should ever take those expletives or those swearings and that you should direct them towards people because I think that's when words become violence and that's when it's a completely different thing. Yes, and I think you are, uh, yes, of course, there is an immediate release when you use that explicit uh, uh, swear word when you stub your toe and you can release that energy. Uh, but I also think that you you can release it uh, other ways, which would be less uh, kind of uh, forceful, if you like. So a lot of people that get angry and they like the fact that you know, if they get triggered, they get angry and they really express it in a violent uh, way. That's the argument they would use as well. You know, it allows me to release my anger. But then you are sending that anger out into the world. So I think the, even though it's challenging, it, it is something you can do and you can allow yourself to release that pain and that emotion in a, in a mindful uh, way. And, uh, you know, I, I practice it when, you know, having young children that sometimes, uh, especially when they are in their teenage years, will scream and yell at you. And that I kind of see that as um, equivalent to stubbing your toe, but emotionally stubbing your toe. Um, so you have them screaming and yelling at you and you're not reacting to it because you are observing your reaction to it and you're observing their uh, interaction. So uh, before I would immediately start, you know, combating the yelling with yelling myself. Now I've practiced and I trained myself to kind of look at the situation from my awareness as opposed to engaging with the, the, the trigger emotion when someone's yelling at me and just allowing them to have their space to do what they need to do and without me escalating it, um, just say, okay, if that's how you feel, then that's how you feel. But I don't need to accept you yelling at me. Um, so I'm going to walk away. And that's kind of how I've worked with it. And yes, I... I do tr uh, try to, if I hurt myself some way, to really step back and look at it from that perspective of the awareness and say, okay, uh, I've hurt myself. Let's feel this. And you just allow it to uh, come up within yourself. You have that anger, the uh, you know disappointment with yourself for being clumsy, whatever it may be. And just observe that coming up within yourself and allow it to dissipate and exp uh, expire out uh, out from your body and uh, you know that's that's uh, that's how I do it uh, and that might not be right for everybody else but that's how I do it I thank you very much um yeah it's very interesting and I feel it depending it well it depends on your level of self-awareness because um if you are into meditation, if you are practicing any, any form of meditation, it's certainly what you are saying. It resonates with me quite a lot that now when I stub my toe, it would I would watch it from the point of consciousness, of pure awareness. Just, yeah, I'm not that pain. So 
you know, for example, if, if I go for a run or if I do physical exercise, that's I put my body under the control level of tension and physical stress, and that does not feel comfortable. But the point is that that feeling of uncom this, this uncomfortable feeling enabled me to grow somehow. And the difference between that control pain and uncontrolled pain, it's the way that I decide to go to the gym and work out, whereas I don't necessarily decide to stab my toe. <laughs> and sometimes it's great exercise to just look at this from the point of awareness and just, yeah, um, I'm not that pain. And you can have that sense of accomplishment afterwards. Like, you know, I control my emotions or I control my behavior. But sometimes you might have worse day and you, you just you just want to swear and mitigate that pain, stop, cease feeling it and get on with the rest of your life. So you might be working on project, you might be working on several different things and you don't want to waste time or stop. Well, it's not, um, it's uh, saying wasting time is not perhaps the best phrase or the most <laughs> fortunate phrase, but sometimes, you know, it, it might be something that stops you doing that at the moment and that that swear word just to kind of um it might be helpful during that situation so i suppose we are creatures and we are interacting with that word um in different ways and we've got to be mindful how we interact and how the energy fluctuates around us and how words uh, it wants to interact with us. So I suppose that your, our reactions are changing based on the environment and that we are in. Yes, I think we also tend to, well, we, we always do our best. Or if we can view ourselves as doing our best, and my best today is going to be different from my best tomorrow. Uh, so tomorrow I might not be able to observe my experiences from my awareness or my consciousness. I'll be right up front there engaging with my or engaging and reacting from the perspective of my emotions. Uh, so yeah, it varies from day to day, but I think it's the uh, being able to strive in your practice to increase your mindfulness uh, or the portion of time that you are mindful um, because then when it, once it becomes part of your very nature i think even if you are in a in a situation where you would consider it to be inconveniencing you to to be mindful it's so much part of your nature that you just do it uh, and it's it become it's very much second nature to you absolutely yeah i don't i don't disagree with that i actually I do agree with everything that you're saying but we also know that we are human and uh we're all at different parts of our of um of our parts so someone today might be perfectly capable of viewing all their experiences from the present moment and from their awareness and yeah, I mean, that they would probably be considered to have been enlightened to the level of uh, Buddha or Jesus or something like that. 
not quite there yet, but uh, <laughs> one uh, one has to have goals, right? Uh, but the I think the 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 goal predom or primarily should be to practice this type of mindfulness so that you allow these emotions that come up to escape from your body so they don't become suppressed and they don't get stuck in your body um, and that's what the part of the uh, the lesson is to kind of allow those uh, emotions to escape and not uh, get stuck in your body and it, as i said before it is a way for your body to communicate something that is in uh, imbalanced within yourself uh, when these emotions come up what i typically do is in my process is i i practice uh, gratitude to, towards the triggers uh, which means that i can observe my thoughts and emotions now my emotions i can't control but my thoughts i can so when the emotion comes up whether uh, if it's triggered by an external source and i have an emotional reaction to it i can observe the emotion but at the same time, observe the thoughts that come in in relation to it. Those thoughts will then help me to ascertain where the uh, emotion comes from, what it's related to, and why I'm triggered by it. And also say, okay, I can see this thought. I, I can choose to have a, uh, go into a different thought pattern relating to this issue, but still allowing the emotion to be expressed. So if someone makes uh, triggers me to uh, get angry or disappointed i can express the actual emotion very clearly and this practice then would also allow you to uh, build up and strengthen your emotional intelligence um, there are i can't remember now but it was someone who had a i think it was uh, yeah, I can't remember. It was a psychiatrist in America anyway that did a study in a, um, at a retreat or an event they had. And the average number of emotions that the participants could name were three. There was uh, joy, sadness, and pissed off. Um, and I think we, uh, we can all agree that the, the range of emotions are far greater in number than that. So it's once we build up that library of naming emotions from, you know, disappointment to sadness, et cetera, et cetera, then we can observe them and allow them to be. And then it becomes much easier for us to uh, go back and see, okay, where does it come from? Right. So it's the, that process of, allowing the emotions build up relationship with your own emotional uh, spectrum if you like that then allows you to have that uh, greater emotional intelligence knowing that you don't need to react to every single emotion that comes up you can just allow it to be and uh, allow it to exist and acknowledge it within your body and and then you can express that in words to whomever you're talking to say, well, what you just said to me was very disappointing and it, uh, it hurt my feelings. And just expressing it like that would be enough 
Uh, and it's however they respond to that is not your responsibility. So if they say, I don't care, that's not your responsibility and you don't need to take that personally. That has more to do with them than it uh, has to do with you. Then it's also, uh, yes, allowing the emotion, but going into choosing your thoughts because the thoughts would then be what perpetuates the uh, uh, perpetuates the emotion and hold makes you to hold on to the emotion. Uh, so if, for example, there's studies been made that uh, the physical body can only hold on to uh, anger for I think it's 90 seconds. Whatever uh, time after that that you still hold on to the um, the emotion or the anger, uh, it's your you're consciously holding on to it. And it's your thoughts that hold on to that because you keep thinking about it, you mull it, and then you kind of push it away into your body somewhere um, for it to be triggered at a later date. So do you basically feel, and it sounds like Carl also agrees with you, so do you feel that the full spectrum of human emotions are not for the enlightened person? I mean, if we have joy sad and pissed off is like the three defaults people have then again i think that it is the, the truly the highs and the lows i mean i i see it so sad that we have a society right now that is completely medicated and all these you know what antidepressants and it's like it, it's something that for a lot of people it's to stabilize them and to make them what they would consider to be normal functional but by token a lot of those people who are doing that they just completely end up feeling numb mm-hmm. so i think that you've got a lot of people walking around i think there was like a saying that i heard a long time ago that i thought was pretty funny that said like 80 percent of the world is on like a permanent coffee break and then you know 10 to 20 percent is like w- waking up or about to wake up so if you kind of expect that you know the antidepressant crowd is definitely going to be in that group but i still I feel like, you know, all of the emotions are as valid as the other ones. It's just a matter of that too. And that's why I was just saying in the sense of where if I have anger that needs to be expressed because it's in my body and I don't do spiritual bypass on it, then I can express it out. But like, for example, driving home from work and blasting music and just singing my heart out to get all that carbon dioxide and that stress out of my body. Those are very cathartic things. And or punching a pillow and imagining that, you know, you're not actually, mm-hmm. you know, having to get into the altercation with the person. So, I mean, I'm not a violent person. That's not how I would all anyway solve my, my things, but it's still the concept is. So my question to you then and to the audience is, are the full spectrum of emotions valid for the enlightened being? Absolutely. I would say, um, I think the difference is that, you experience the emotion from uh, the perspective of, or the, yeah, the perspective of your awareness or your consciousness, as opposed to from the perspective of the emotion itself. Um, and you don't judge the emotion good or bad. You allow the emotion to, you allow yourself to feel the emotion, you acknowledge it and you allow it to be, but you don't need to in, uh, interact with it. You don't need to feed it energy. Uh, you just allow it to, you allow yourself to experience it uh, fully. And 
without attaching yourself to and allow without allowing your thoughts to perpetuate it. Carol, do you have any uh, thing to feed into that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Well, uh, so I think, first of all, the concept of emotion is very interesting as itself because, um, so for example, if we focus on things like stress, um, people tend to label stress as something that is negative. And uh, I think it was like the study that has been in, at the beginning of 20th century, I think 1905 or something like that, um, that introduced the concept of use stress or something like that, that moderate level of stress, stress can enhance experience and cognitive, uh, cognitive performance. If people are going to perform something, it's good to, uh, for example, like public speaking or wherever, it's good to feel a little bit of, of, of stress because that enhances the, the performance that, and it's a good demonstration that you actually care about, uh, about something. And I, I think when it comes to emotions, when you look at the brain scan, your brain doesn't know whether you are stressing out or whether you're scared or whether you um, experience positive stress or positive emotions or negative emotions. It's just neurological zoop and uh, connections of the synapses and neurons that are firing up together. And this experience we tend to label whether for positive experience or negative experience, but frankly, for in your brain, it does not matter. And there were a lot of uh, uh, studies in, in psychology in 20th century um, that were going to uh, categorize emotions into categories. So for example, Robert, Robert Plutnik was one of the guy, um, Paul Ekman, was talking about the universal expressions of emotions and things like that. Um, and that is associated with the Western culture. Uh, for example, if we travel into more Asian worlds or more Eastern, Eastern um, the traditions, we can see that there are some emotions that have many more labels than in uh, Western societies. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, uh, lot of experiences that we have is um is purely the label and coming back to barbie's point whether the enlightened being are experiencing the emotion i think i don't, I don't remember who said that i think it might have been stephen bachelor that we actually don't experience one enlightenment but several or multiple enlightenments that every time that we come to realize that we are looking at our experience from the consciousness point of view or the awareness point of view. That's our micro enlightenment. And more we practice uh, mindfulness or meditation, it does not mean that we stop feeling emotions that we label positive or negative. Our response or reaction to those emotions is changing. Mm -hmm. So if I don't practice meditation, every time I stab my feet, I might just throw the tantrum and punch a pillow or punch the wall or whatever. But with, as my practice progress, then I'm able just to look at this. Yeah, I still experience pain, but you know, I'm okay with this. So it's, uh, well, there are different school of thoughts. And there is one school of thought that is saying that when you are an enlightened being, then you won't experience any negative emotions. Personally, I don't, 
I, I don't know whether it is possible or no. I, I, I don't know. What I, based on my understanding and based on my experience, I still have emotions that you can label negative or positive, but my reaction to negative emotions is changing. And I, I can see that, but I'm still miles to go. Well, Carol, would you, uh, would you agree that it's, it's our, how we judge the emotions, good or bad, that is changing, and our attachment to those emotions that are changing as we, uh, you know, progress in our, uh, or evolve in our mindfulness pr uh, practices? Uh, definitely. Um, and I think, uh, I think the, the whole concept of judging, it's something that is very problematic. Because you, when you are judging, you're adopting some kind of lens. And you look at the situation through specific uh, viewpoint. And I think that can be very destructive because if you are striving for something that, that's good, if you don't get that, that might bring you suffering. Or if you are focusing on something that is negative all the time and you're looking for those negatives in the world or within yourself, that's gonna bring you suffering as well. So judgment it, in itself, it's um, it might be kind of problematic. So, but well, I I I, I kind of get caught. I, I'm catching myself every time that uh, in meditation that even if I think that I don't have that lens or things or or feelings or thoughts. That's kind of deception, because at the kind of the very bottom level or on the ontological level, uh, ontological level or or a phenomenological level, I still have the, those lenses, and um, yeah, I would be it would be great to experience one day that feeling that yeah, I don't need to, I don't judge, but I I I have not I have not been there yet. But we do tend to view our present and our future experiences through the filter of our past experiences and we we judge them based on that uh and our those experiences are what trigger us to have the emotions so here's a bit of a thought experience for you or a thought experiment if you were to take a person and allow that person to say for the first 30 years of their life to be in a vacuum in terms of experiences. So you still allow them to have the wisdom and the knowledge of growing up to that age, but they are not having the ability to judge their experiences, good or bad from an emotional point of view. Will they still have the emotions or will they, uh, if they do have the emotions, uh, is, uh, are they able to just allow the emotions to exist without judging them good or bad? Or are they not able to have the emotions because they are not, they don't have the emotion or the, the ability to attach those emotions to any experiences? Well, this is interesting what you are saying, and I'm not sure whether I understand the task of this thought experiment correctly, because there were thought experiments done by like Plato, uh, 
the, the caveman, uh, caveman experiment. And I think that what we have seen in the 20th century in like Romania uh, with uh, orphans, uh, we see that if you're, if you, and I, if you put people in those situations that they are uh, limited with the social contact of, with other people or they are restricted from kind of normal interaction, they cannot, um, they do not develop the way the other people are developing because the, what is kind of important to understand, and I know that um, and there is more and more psychiatrists and psychologists that are talking about that, because in a folk psychology and in psychological studies from the 20th century, we grew to understand that our brain are formed as like, you know, we've got some underpinnings of um, reptilian brain and then the neuro uh, frontal cortex is kind of the modern uh, analytical um, part of our, of our brains. But more and more scientists are coming together and explaining that actually those were the concepts that kind of enable us to understand how the brain works, but they do not have kind of scientific underpinnings and yeah. brain works more in holistically. And if you let someone, and of course the people are social creatures and not only social creatures, I think that we are living in, in multiple dimensions at the same simultaneously when we are interacting with the physical world or with our, within our spiritual world and emotional world. And if you remove one of those factors or development of one of those factors is impaired, then the firing of your brain and the neural connections that you have is, has profound significant impact. So you can't, I, I don't think that this experiment, that that photo experiment, by, by the way I understand it, you know, you can't, I think, put isolate people and then expect that they will have normal or neurotypical emotional response. No, no, of course, it's like Schrodinger's cat, you know, you, there, there is no real answer to it because it's, um, wholly impractical and uh, uh, allowing someone to have the wisdom. You wouldn't have the wisdom without the experiences, right? And yeah. without the experiences, you wouldn't have the, you, or you wouldn't be able to have the experiences without the emotions, right? So yeah. it, it, it's a wholly impractical uh, as, a, as a physical experience, but as a thought process and a thought experience experiment it's quite interesting but just to add to this i think it was said by barbie on this podcast um, several podcasts ago like and you can see that clear distinction between eastern world and western world so if, if you know if you are coming from um western tradition we are more egocentric mm -hmm. uh, tend to be more selfish whereas if we travel to eastern worlds people are collective yeah. and that, that even though people have those same um, emotions or range of emotions or the human experience, the way we interact with the, our human experience is slightly different, whether we can look at through the lens of our own ego or more collective. So I think this is an interesting um, point to view this issue through that lens. Yeah, no, for sure. 
And I think too, thank you for bringing up the thing about the remaining orphans. Cause I mean, I've actually seen some of those children myself in, in the United States of where they just drop their shoes, they drop whatever. They don't have any attachments to human beings at all. They don't have any need for because they've been so completely isolated in different wards. And I know there was a documentary called Chernobyl Heart, which was also a similar type of thing about that where doctors with borders went in and helped them out. And I, I know that there was also another study that was done as well that showed that a lot of Western babies oftentimes have more the SIDS, the sudden infant death syndrome because of the lack of touch. And they're put into, you know, they all have a wet nurse rather than the mother who actually comes in and loves them. They'll have, you know, crib, they'll have all sorts of different things that <clears throat> the accoutrements, whereas if you go to like, I live in California, so we have a lot of uh, Hispanic people and in their extended family gatherings, those babies almost never, ever get to be down on the ground. They get passed around to like, you know, the grandma, the grandpa, the uncles, the aunts, every single child. It's always like, oh, give me the baby, give me the baby. And they have the, the lowest mortality is Latin babies apparently in the world because of the amount of touch that they receive and the amount of care and the, you know, cooing over them, et cetera. And so I think that in this post-pandemic world, it's a very important thing to look at too, in the sense of where I think for a lot of people, triggers that turn into addictions, like, you know, overeating, compulsive shopping, you know, drug abuse. I mean, they say the alcoholism went off, off, off the roof and that kind of stuff because there's a disconnection on that. And unfortunately, although the virtual world is a substitute and I'm grateful that we have it, it still isn't an actual substitute for the fact that if I've had a bad day and I need a hug and I just need to be held for like two minutes just to say, you know, it's going to be okay. That is a complete something that, you know, I haven't had a hug in a year. So that's the kind of thing too, of where I think that that can be a trigger overall of where you feel that, that isolation as to what, Carl was talking about as well is that we are social beings and we need to be with each other. We need to be with each other in physical proximity where we can smell each other and touch each other and be around each other. And so as an enlightened being, I don't ever want to get to a point. I'm not trying to be, you know, a nun. So it's like, I never want to be to a place of where it's like, I'm completely neutral in my, in my ideologies and I have no emotions. I mean, the reason why I am who I am is because of the excitement that I feel like I can get to a level that, is because of the fact that I have command of my emotions and it's, it's fun because it's in, inspiring and it's fun to be able to pull people along with that vision. But if I was just like, you know, okay, man, so we're going to like do this thing. Cause like I'm super chill and enlightened. Everyone would be like, yeah, no thanks. Cause everybody wouldn't move because there would be no energy to be able to do that. So there is also the energy of excitement and other things like that too. But then by the same token, when you do speaking engagements, other things like that, there's the adrenaline that kicks in. And after you've done something, you know, big, all of a sudden you have the come down on that as well. So that's also something where I remember listening to Lady Gaga said it was weird for her being in front of 30,000 fans at Madison Square Gardens. And then she goes back to her hotel room and she's all by herself and there's nobody there. So that's the part that's a dichotomy also of the human experience of where we have so many different things. So that's, that's my, my take on it in the sense of where I'm hoping that post pandemic, we will also get back to the ability to have the normal capacity of touch, because I think that that, at least for me, is definitely a trigger. And I don't think one thing has to be sacrificed for another. Uh, I think that the fact that you are able to choose to become excited is that's a process in that mindfulness that you choose your how you act and how you react, right? 
So as I always say, there are three things we can control, our thoughts, our words, our actions. Um, now, if we uh, find ourselves out of control with our thoughts, then we perpetuate the, these emotions that uh, we, we should really allow to give space and acknowledge and allow them to dissipate and escape out, out from our bodies. Um, and once we can control our thoughts, then we can allow those feelings to do exactly that. And we can choose to direct our thoughts in a positive way or in a positive direction uh, and create that excitement and build, basically through our thoughts, uh, trigger emotions that we want to express outwards. Right, Barbara? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think that, again, it's the, the choice of where you bring it, but that, you know, a lot of times too, the emotions that we bring, if we're going to be going to a party, what do we do? We try to get ourselves into a good mood, right? Yeah. Nobody be at a party with someone who's a grump or a bummer, right? You want to have that opportunity where you're having a good time. So that makes a huge difference too, in the sense of where we also, I think the other part that becomes a trigger for a lot of times people is that, and, you know, teenagers come to mind with that as well, in the sense of where if they're just feeling like, you know, oh, everything sucks, it sucks, it's so bad, I don't want to do this, it's lame, I don't like it. It's like if you find different ways to be able to make it more enjoyable with gamifying it or doing other things like that. It's like that whole concept that they had in Snow White in the 1930s from Walt Disney. It's like the whistle while you work. If you're doing, you know, chores and you're humming a little tune and you're making yourself happy, you can also kind of abate some of those triggers as well. Hi. Um, yeah, first, I want to say thanks for this conversation. This, these are things that I work with my clients all the time, um, digging in and observing, looking at the past and what's creating your present. Um, but one other thought that I had when you were talking about the experiment, the thought experiment, is you could take a lot of different people and put them in a situation, and each one of them will have an entirely different experience and expression of that. And I think some of that is derived through our, even our DNA, like that's their past through generations and generations. Um, like my son, I raised him as a single mom and throughout the years he has done and said things that were exactly like his father, but he's not been around his dad. Yeah. So those things are, partly passed down and it's our choice in what we're going to do with them um so what are your thoughts about that well I, th uh, I think that comes back largely to the karma uh, which i suppose comes down to a bit of a what you believe as well to me there are you know ancestral karma there's uh, blood lineage karma the genetic karma um there's cultural karma. So, for example, uh, there are countries that, like if you take Ireland, for example, uh, the potato famine, there was, uh, there was a karmic energy that was created in that, So, which you can see in Irish families uh, still today relating to that. Um, so that's, I would see that coming from that. And I suppose the question you're asking is uh, nature versus nurture, right, Laurie? Um, well, I mean, it's a combination. We're not one or the other. You, you don't have one without the other. No, exactly. 
So it's, uh, uh, I don't think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think uh, science has, a, has a, an absolute answer to that question either. You know, what, what part is nurture and what part is nature? And what is it that creates the behavioral patterns from a genetic point of view? Um, and that's where I choose to believe that's a karmic energy that is passed on uh, through the family lineage. Um, that's where I would look at it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're saying basically the same thing. You're, um, you're just calling it karma. Um, I guess my thought of karma was, was a different view, but I see this point of, it is, it's in our DNA structure somewhere. I mean, even the fact if you like broccoli could be in your DNA structure. Yeah. Um, if you have a propensity toward baking, if you have, so for us to think it's very, in, in a very linear term that it's only those certain traits that can get passed down. I believe emotional patterns and the, thinking patterns can also be passed down. But yet in this lifetime, if we are someone who's willing to open ourselves up and look at that and observe those behaviors, we can shift them yeah. and shift that part of us. Exactly. And that, that's, that's shifting the karmic uh, cycle. Um, and that's, right. that's what we do, you know, in, in therapy, for example, when we look at our personal karma, karma that we've, brought on in our younger years as it were um, and we shift our thought patterns relating to those experiences and we release the karmic energy from and that's the emotion then dissipating out of our body that we've suppressed uh, that's releasing that karmic uh, cycle and we uh, release ourselves from re-experiencing uh, that energy coming back over and over and again until we learn the lesson. I just want to throw a wrench in that too, because I think that it's also very interesting to hear about the stories of, of organ transplants, because you have parts that get put yeah. into people who, you know, all of a sudden the next thing you know, they're completely vegan and they're like, I need a steak. I need a really, really rare, you know, or they have certain like all sudden cravings and things that they've never had because of the bodies and that. And also one of the reasons why initially when they were working with that wasn't exactly the best fit for the human either. But it'll be interesting to see that as we become more and more technologically advanced and have more artificial intelligence in there in regards to being able to assist with being that bionic version of the human where it's a hybrid almost, which probably is coming in the next 20 to 40 years, if not sooner, it'll be interesting to see what that makes as a difference as well. I think for a lot of children now, they're seeing that the screen is the reality as opposed to the outside. And if the screen is the reality and the outside is the fake, that's a juxtaposition we've never had in the entire history of the world. And that's a, that's a very interesting kind of kettle of fish to look at that from a different perspective, because again, there's, I don't have a problem with any of these like augmentation, but the supplanting, I'm not okay with that. So in, in my opinion that we've got what billions of people on this planet who all need to find their purpose and their mission. And so therefore having now a different class of machines also, that's a, you know, a whole other conversation, but it's still in regards to karmic energy and is in DNA and all those through you. 
that then starts to add extra wrenches into it too, because they're experiments. And Ex Machina is like one of my favorite movies of all time. I mean, I just thought that kind of ideology of, of the fact that, you know, you can't find what you want, so you would think you're gonna make it, but then every single one of those dolls that he makes hates his guts, which is a very interesting creation story. Yeah. No, no, uh, that is definitely a, a possible subject for another, another time, looking at uh, the, various realities that we as humans can conjure up whether they exist or not so it's um, the alternative or shouldn't really call them alternative realities because they're just different uh, other alter or other realities apart from the one where we're sharing here and it's uh, I suppose going back to what Laurie was saying as well that uh, the uh, article I wrote about uh, uh, truth as a par paradox. We can all, we're all sitting here having seemingly the same experience, but we're all going to look at this experience from entirely different perspectives. Uh, we are all going to look at it from our own perspectives and take uh, something away from it that is totally unique to us. So what is reality then? Um, and we're not going to go into that in further depth, but I, I think it's important in terms of understanding the, the triggers of an experience that triggers me, but doesn't trigger someone else. Why is that? And to that end, I've come to the conclusion that if it triggers me, that means I'm, I have something within me that remains unhealed relating to that experience or to that person, to what was being said or what was being done or what, whatever it may be. Um, and it's then up to me to uh, do something about it or uh, to not do something about it. It's my choice. Um, but if I want to progress, it's a good idea to... Um, kind of look at what I can do about it. So once you have those triggers, it's, I think it's important to understand that we, we have the superpower of choice, that we can choose how to respond, right? So I typically use the, in my coaching practice, I use the four pillars of uh, compassion, uh, acceptance, forgiveness, and gratitude. So looking at every experience from, with those four pillars allows me to then understand myself better and understand that I don't need to judge anybody else. I don't need to uh, assume I know anybody else's story and I don't need to take anything personal um, because I'm only responsible, responsible for me and really only responsible for my thoughts, my words and my actions because those are the only things I can control. Um, but then how do I express so if I get triggered and it's anger coming up how do I express that anger do I respond in kind like do I yell back or do I simply express this makes me angry uh, I feel triggered by this and then you can choose either to uh, continue to engage in the conversation in the in the experience or walk away again we have that superpower of choice right and also trusting our boundaries once we develop 
that practice of being able to make our choices, we can also trust our boundaries that we will respond in a uh, in a way that is congruent with our belief system. And uh, that is when we walk away from it or when, when the experience is kind of uh, is over, then we're able to feel good about our response. We're good, feel good. We don't feel that we've left anything unsaid or we, uh, we don't feel like we've overstepped, you know, where we feel that we should, you know, we haven't uh, called anybody by any uh, names or anything like that. So we can feel good about the experience. So that, those are all part of that choice. But if we are engaging fully with the emotion from, uh, from the point of view of the trigger, we lose that control. We're not able to always control how we respond. And therefore we lose, uh, we give away the power of uh, choice. So that, that's why I feel it's important to allow ourselves to practice this to regain um, that superpower of choice. And something I worked with for a long time was trying to understand how I can heal from these different uh, challenges or fears that I had learned. You know, how do I learn the lesson? And again, it's the, the four pillars. Um, once you get uh, understand that trigger and where the trigger leads you in terms of your own experiences and where the original sensitizing event is, once you're able to go back that there and then go back and again apply the four pillars that I just mentioned: the uh, compassion, acceptance, forgiveness, and gratitude. Rinse and repeat, you know, until uh, you've been able to take the the gift from that experience, i.e., the lesson. Uh, once you're able to extract that and write the hero story as opposed to the victim story. And also be able to, um, when you trigger that memory of that experience, that you don't have the uh, the emotion attached to it, but you can you can neutrally uh, experience the uh, memory of that uh, experience without the emotion. Uh, then that that's my litmus test. That I've forget uh, I've uh, I've been able to achieve forgiveness. So forgiving myself and everybody else involved in the experience. So that those are the that's the process I go through when when I uh, experience triggers, and uh, you know, there's uh, it's becoming more of second nature to me. But in the beginning, it's certainly challenging. Um, but we all have the choice on how we uh, deal with our triggers, and uh, but knowing that we have a choice. It can sometimes be uh, the, the big uh, change agent. Thank you, everybody, for joining in. Have a great day. And as we said at the end of the day, it is your choice to uh, observe and accept the triggers as being a compass for you to find those uh, aspects of yourself that need to be healed. But it is your choice. And uh, the just know that the triggers will keep coming uh, throughout your life until you accept them and decide to do something with them whatever you decide to do now if you found this discussion interesting and uh, 
resonates with you and you want to work a little bit further and deeper into these challenges and how they apply to you, then uh, perhaps our workshop, our coaching workshop might be the place for you. So I suggest uh, heading over to our website, thealchemyexperience.co.uk and on there you will find a link to book a 30-minute free consultation where we can have a chat and uh, explore if uh, we are the place for you to discover these aspects about yourself um, further. So uh, unless I meet you over there, I hope to see you at uh, the next podcast. Take care now.